Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Oops and Ouch, we are joined by Christy Bell Garcia, Assistant Dean for Student Support and Success at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about resources, structures, and practices that help students thrive. We are so happy to be talking today to Christy Bell Garcia, who's amazing and wonderful, and is our Assistant Dean for Student Support and Success at the Rose Hill Campus. Um, She's been at Fordham for about 13, 14 years now, is that right? She started out as an Assistant Director in STEP and C-STEP. And I'm also really proud and happy to say that she just earned her doctorate in education. Um, And so, she is a total rock star. And um, so Christy Bell, I wanted to ask you, because we're talking a lot about how faculty might want to adapt their practices, thinking about coming back into the classroom in the fall, from your perch, what would you advise a friend? If I came to you and said, what should I be looking for? What should I be thinking about for my classes in the fall as far as what students want and need coming back from the pandemic? What would your advice be? I think one of the things that is really important is to just like acknowledge that everybody's not coming to this from the same place um, and with the same experience. Um, part of it is like naming what, where you're coming from, um, what you've experienced, um, and making space for that, right? For yourself, um, because it's easy to project these ideas onto or experiences on other people, right? And so just like being with like, what have I experienced? Like, how am I feeling about fill in the blank? Um, and then knowing that your students may or may not be experiencing any of that. <laughs> um, and that how, how might you create space to let them sit with what they're experiencing coming back. Um, Because, you know, I was saying to someone, another colleague, I said, there's excitement, right? There's students who are so excited about coming back while they're simultaneously really anxious about coming back. Right. Um, And that those two things can be true at the same time. Like I can be really excited about this new thing and also be really anxious about it. Um, And I could be really scared and I can be really nervous, and I can be really afraid, right? Like that there are lots of different feelings for coming back, um, and that neither is good nor bad, right? They're just different. Um, And how do we normalize that different feelings about being back are okay? And that if I don't, right, like I haven't been in a, right, we have sophomores who haven't been in a college classroom, but have been college students for a year, right? So, Let's think about these young people, right? We have first year students who may have been remote a good chunk of last year, right? We had schools, we take that for granted, right? We had kids who maybe went to school two days a week in high school, right? And it was a little bit better than our sophomores who like didn't have prom. Like, this is a funny story, but last year we had a parent who was like, so will you all have like a prom for my kid? Like, what are the ceremonial things you will do? Because my child did not have ceremonial things. And, you know, I laughed that she said a prom, but this idea, right, that things were lost, that 
people gave up things. It's actually a really good question. Yeah. So what is ceremonial about this return? And how are we in spending time creating welcoming space? Um, So I was listening to Chris Emden, um, who's a faculty member at um, Teachers College and who taught, uh, right, he does a lot of urban education work. And he's like really big on welcoming community, like welcoming cultures in the classroom, right? And he's just like, really, like, spending time, like, what time are we spending thinking about the, the space we are creating, right? Like, that everything matters. Like, if you're prepared, that matters. And that your lack of preparation says something, right? And this was the example, right? Like, if you're not prepared, what does it tell these young people about what you think about them and how much you value them? And I was like, blow my mind, right? Like, that my lack of preparation cues to them that they're not that important, that I didn't value this time with them as much. And that's not, the, and it's not that that was the intention, but the question is, what is the impact when, when we don't spend time? If you just preparing? say, right, open your books to chapter one, as if it's September. Like it's as if annual. we're not in the middle of a pandemic. Like I, I get that we're like reopening. I get that. It is still a pandemic in a lot of ways. In addition to the fact that we have dealt, we are like, you know, politically polarized. We have supposedly gone through racial reckoning in quotations, like whatever that means. And we have a very large diverse class joining us. And it's like, y'all, Let's sit with the recipe that that is and that people are afraid and people are nervous and people are excited, right? That those things have to kind of all be processed. The first day of class, like, are you working on your plan for creating the welcoming culture? So like you worked on the syllabus. It's so dope. Like you have like great authors, like you, you know, you spent time, you feel good about it. Great. Now, what does it look like to create a welcoming culture, to create a culture of trust? Maybe something that I haven't valued as much because I wasn't trained to value that as much because I've been trained to value the product. What is this process? What is this journey that these young people and I are going to embark on after what has been a really challenging, difficult time for everyone? And it's so tricky, right? I'm wondering if you have advice for thinking about ceremonies, icebreakers, rituals that avoid those kinds of pitfalls where people are othered or encouraged to other themselves in ways that distance us from each other. I don't know that I have the answer, but I'm, I'm wondering how do we work through that discomfort? Because I think the learning is also in the discomfort in the something about that was unsettling to me. And why was I unsettled by it? And what was it that I think, because then it's really not about what you asked, right? But how, when it was shared, was it valued and validated? Like this is a, an experience that this person had that is different than another person's experience, but neither one is better or worse. 
was it that you were not expecting it as the instructor, right? And so as an instructor, as you're preparing something, um, is it you playing out various possible scenarios for what could happen when I ask this question, which then invites you to say, when I design a lesson, am I throwing in possible identities of students and intersectional identities and saying, what might happen if I ask this question and how might students in my class receive this if I think about it from different, because the truth is you were making assumptions about who was in the room. Because even as you design a, a possible activity, it's like, who are you designing it for? And what are you expecting? And then when it is uncomfortable, are you frustrated that it's uncomfortable because you were not prepared for the discomfort? When we plan anything for young people in our spaces, are we asking ourselves who could possibly be in there? Because you don't know who could be in there. No. So really the preparation is in the, what are all the possible scenarios for my possible session or activity? Why am I asking this question? What do I hope to accomplish with it? And that's one of the fictions. I mean, we could probably do a podcast on all of the list of, generating a list of fictions that we as faculty and instructors work really hard to perpetuate and sustain. And I think the idea of an equitable starting point is looms large in, the, in that list. Are there community agreements that we set together about how we will be together, right? And um, how we will create accountability, how we will create support. Dr. Bolgatz in, in GSE, she was like, oops and ouch. When something doesn't settle right with you, how do we create space for oops, like, oh, or ouch, right? Um, which sounds like, oh, that's so basic, but like, do we create permission for there to be that, right? Like that I had discomfort and I could cue discomfort um, so that we could work through that. You have these, these students for 15 weeks. Let's talk about our like uh, faculty. So in week one, you don't know that much about your students, but every week you're learning a little bit more about them. And are you shifting and adjusting with your group as the weeks are evolving? And what message does that send to students, even if you make an adjustment to your syllabus? So let's say you make an adjustment in week six and you tell the class exactly why you made that adjustment. Oftentimes you don't say it out loud, but you can be like, you know, this was in the syllabus originally, but based on how our conversation is going and how we've been contributing or how we're doing this, I'm thinking we might shift this around or do that. And it feels like it's we're participating with the faculty member in this conversation about us as a group and our journey together in this course and in this content, which is different than when students will say to us, oh, the professor took such and such assignment out and did this other thing. And it felt like decisions were made that they didn't understand where they were coming from and why we were doing that versus a student and their experience. So students will say, oh yeah, no, here's the syllabus, but we changed that and we did this differently. And, you know, and they feel good about it versus, this was taken out and this wasn't done. And look, we don't have, this assignment isn't graded. And now they added another 20% to the final. Like, what if that doesn't work for me? But the other thing that didn't happen was choice. And so I remember, right, like in my training and teaching, choice was like, like, that was it. Like, that was the buzz. Like, are you creating opportunities for choices? Why did it matter so much that young people had choices? I have like small children. If I give my kids choices, they're my choices, but I give them choice. <laughs> like, do you want pancakes today or do you want farina? Do you want avena, oatmeal, or do you want, you know, turkey bacon? We were having <laughs> breakfast. 
Right. You're having breakfast and mommy's not making eggs today. So you had choice A or choice B. Do you want the blue bathing suit or the red bathing suit? Either bathing suit works. Again, right? Thinking about these practices that we learn for K through 12, like how is that applicable in this context? Do you assess and evaluate everybody with the same choices? Or do you say, there are two ways that we can, you can pick. And then people were like, oh, that felt kind of good. Like I got to pick a way to show you that I had learned this. And are they comparable? And are they fair? And are they equitable, right? It does create another level of work. But what does it mean for the culture of the classroom? What does it mean for the student in the classroom? And how does that, how is that so important and valuable to us? You talked at the beginning about the feeling you get when you're in a learning space that feels like it's going to work for you. And you said, I just go, I just know by feeling, right. Which I believe, but also I know that you wrote your dissertation on microaggressions. And so can you talk a little bit about what you learn from students, like advice on how to create that feeling? What's, how are students getting, I mean, obviously when a microaggression is committed, upon you, you know, you feel icky, right? I mean, that's not like a mystery, but what are some things that you learned from that dissertation that you might want to share out with us? Um, so thanks for asking. I mean, I think what was universal and what we learned was like that the students were experiencing microaggressions, right? That like everyone in, in the focus groups had experienced them. Um, and we got some examples of what they were and it wasn't anything that wasn't kind of in the liter literature um, about these kinds of microaggressions, right? What strategies they found useful or what was helpful in kind of navigating and negotiating this experience. It was really interesting to see how important faculty mentorship was, the role that faculty mentorship could play in helping to mitigate some of the effects. So it could be protective in some cases when students felt like they could identify mentorship that that could be transformational. Faculty mentors, right? And what does that look like in the academy for student, for you know, BIPOC students to identify mentorship, to understand what mentorship can be, how it's accessible, and what mentors are and what they do and kind of what's their scope. Stacey Abrams' book, she um, Leading from the out Outside, and she has like a section about mentorship, but she calls it a board of advisors. And so she encourages students to develop a board of advisors and it's different forms of, you know, your peer mentorship and a sponsor and a content, a content like expert kind of thing. Um, but she shifts the perspective that there's, it's like your faculty mentor will not be everything to you, but they have a very active role that they can play here, but they're only one type of mentor that you can you can have in the, in the I academy. I love that. I love that because that's like the, BIPOC faculty mentoring program that I participated in 20 years ago, where I was the writing mentor for, for young doctoral candidates who were finishing up. I was their writing mentor, but they had three or four other mentors in different fields. And, you know, if you've got four people, if you've got this board of advisors that you're describing, chances are you'll get good advice from each of them, but you're, you have a better chance of vibing with one of them, of really loving one of them, right? And if you just give someone one advisor and they just, you know, on paper, it looks like a match, but they just aren't in sync with each other. That doesn't solve the problem of helping them navigate stuff. 
because you work in success at the university, can you mm -hmm. talk with us a little bit about what success means and what are the various kind of manifestations of success for different constituencies and individuals at the university? Often, you know, people are trying to make sense of what like student success is. And I think the way that I've sort of come to understand my role is to think about how do we center students when we are constructing or reconstructing a space, an institution um, that is focused on students. I love how you just stopped. It's like, <laughs> let's center students. Let's just do that for a second. And it sounds so basic, but it's not so basic because not everything is constructed for the benefit of students with students in mind and informed by students and understanding students. Um, a lot of things we've just done that way for a really long time because it's what makes sense for maybe 20 years ago. It was what we did because it's the resources we had and it invites us to begin to question pretty much everything, which is what I think is exciting um, is that we get to ask why for everything, like, but why? Okay, and why? <laughs> and is that the only way? And what options are available? Um, and I think when we embark on that journey, then we are thinking about what does this student need? Or what would, these what would our students need to help them to thrive here? And then kind of key being thrive. What would it look like if students were thriving? And then what would it look like if students felt that they belonged here? And what does it look like? And what does it feel like? And what are they experiencing? There's a certain interpersonal part to this. And then there's like, what are the policies and procedures and structures that are in place, right? That create barriers for students and of students from a variety of walks of life. Because not everybody is coming to this from the same starting point, which we kind of said, right? So student success is very much reimagining where we're starting from and how do we measure success? It's like, I was at commencement standing there, right? And I pretty much got to like usher pretty much everybody up because that was where my, my, my job was. And there were students that I had the opportunity to connect with during my time in this role. And I knew what success looked like as they were crossing that stage. And they weren't going to be asked to stand with the group that has summa cum laude. And they're not going to be an alpha sigma nu. And they're not, which is all success. Like that is, that's awesome. But for some of this, these students, it was rebuilding their confidence that they could be successful here because it's hard to come and fail and to then believe that you can come back from that that there was trauma, right? That there was unexpected life circumstances, that there are things that have happened. And are they any less successful? No. So what does that look like, right? If we're changing how we're assessing, and we've talked a lot about assessing, right? Like, but even how we're assessing what it means for people to be successful. Um, and then what does it mean for us as an institution to be successful? Like, are we being successful in supporting students? who come to our institu institution? Are we keeping our promise? You know, when parents are like, you said you, you were gonna care for much. Like, and I quote, right? They're like, what does it look like? Like they're, they want to know what that feels like to their student. Is it that there's 
faculty mentorship, right? Is it that there are classrooms where my student can actively be engaged, where people are seeing them, they are being recognized, right? Like, how can I support this student? What could we do differently? How can I also like push them for really exciting things, right? Like, are you nominating students for prestigious fellowships? Like, are you, are you being that, like that person and saying like, I see you. No, you don't have a 4.0, but you could still be a Fulbright. Like, I see that in you. I see those gifts and those talents. And you promote those students. And Or you know about an internship. Or you know about an opportunity with one of your colleagues. And you're like, I know this really great student. I had yeah. a student who said he wanted to go into mergers and acquisitions. And I said, I held myself back. And I said, what makes you interested in that? And he said, I love people and I love talking to people about what they want to do. And I was, there was such a beautiful answer and it was so interesting because it was such a narrow and maybe it was the right career for him, but it was such a narrow target for such a big thing that he knew was his skill and it was an accurate self-assessment. And I remember I just had this conversation with him. I was like, that is true of you. You are great at connecting people. There's a lot you could do with that. And, you know, what do you think about other ways to make contrib contribution to the world? And you could just see that, like, he hadn't had a lot of that kind of conversation where we were just playing. I don't have any stake in what he chooses for a career, but it was fun to kind of play with him about, like, knowing this is a strength. What are some things you might do next? Well, Chrissy, Don, what I what I loved about your your definition of success is that the analysis and critique are directed institutionally and not individually, because the responsibility for student success, I think, sometimes is laid at the feet of the students. You didn't work hard enough. It's that myth mm -hmm. of meritocracy and equity, and it, it's like, okay, what are the structures and systems in place at the university that sustain or inhibit student success? And do we have generalized agreement at our institution around what student success really means? Like what, what, what is a successful Fordham student? Are we creating space for discernment in the classroom? There's these Jesuit ideals and Jesuit pedagogy. And like, what does that look like in practice? Like good teaching and learning kind of looks like incorporating those really key pointers. I know Father Lito did a talk and he said that the purpose was to create the awe in students. And that I hasn't left me when he said that. The education is like to do awe. And I was like, sit with that for a second. If the education has the power to create the awe, this is bigger and bolder and more expansive than I could have imagined. Imagine every discipline allowing students to be like, my world is way bigger. Or this idea, right, like of discerning gifts and talents. And do we create space for validation of those things? And then a space to dream, which people may think is wild, but like, it's not. Is there a space to dream something that you may not even have the language for yet? That is a thing that I've been wrestling with. Sometimes you only dream what you think for what you have a framework for. But we're invited to allow students and invite students to dream about things that they may not even have a framework for yet. And how does the education allow them to imagine other ways of thinking, of being, of coming to community? 
it can it can do that. That's that's really exciting to me. <laughs> if we're not doing the work of asking the why, why are we doing it the way we've always done it? How on earth are we even beginning to imagine that we're inviting that kind of imagination, that kind of discernment, that kind of opening up to the sublime, to the vast universe of possibilities to, I mean, there are problems in this world that need solving and doing things the way that we've done them the whole time, this whole time is not going to help us get out of the pickle that we're in. And so I think this kind of really, really enthusiastic, exciting sense of the possibility of education is the key to our future. We're preparing them for a world that we do not know what it will look like. That is the reality, that we are preparing them for careers, for experiences. If somebody told y'all we were going to have an 18-month pandemic, that we would have pivoted to flexible hybrid model and that we could do it and that we could do it successfully and that you had students saying, my class was amazing, my professor was great, or my professor wasn't so great, but they tried. And they showed up every week, right? And we made it through together. And we were there for each other. You would have been like, we're going to do that? And we did it. We just don't know what the, we don't know, right? But what we do know is that if we can support students in being the best version of themselves, then maybe. Maybe there's, maybe there's a hope, right, for what it will hold. I always like to ask people about a teacher that inspired them. Do you have someone that you think about who really makes you think about teaching in new ways? I would give a shout out to Jane Bolgatz in GSC, who was my advisor in the program, um, because she offered me Claude Steele's um, Whistling Vivaldi as a gift to a young doctoral candidate, um, a young doctoral student, um, and really gave me language to talk about what stereotype threat like looked like and felt like. And I think that it was really powerful what she did, right? Like she, she could anticipate something and offered me this scholar, scholarly work as a gift, right, for the journey. She wasn't sure where it was going to settle, but she was like, this is a gift for the journey. Um, and so I'm eternally grateful because I think it made me feel less crazy and like made me have some tools that I could, you know, kind of say, hmm, stereotype threat. Ooh, there's a word for this thing. And I'm not crazy. Like it is happening. And it happens to, you know, uh, minoritized groups um, in, in the academy. And so, you know, shout out to Claude Steele and Whistling Vivaldi if y'all want to check it out. Great book. Christy Bell, thank you so much for your time. Really, truly, like, I just feel so lucky that I work at a place where you also work. It's really an honor and a privilege to have this conversation. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being our guest here today. We really- well, thank you to my sofa. Thank you, Stephen, and for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor really to um, share in conversation and to think about how we build community together. So find me in, in Keating 201. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at 
twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.